Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight shines on New York-based jazz innovators Jane Ira Bloom and Mark Elias, who join us to discuss their latest collaboration with drummer Bobby Previtt, 2-3-23. I'd like to read from Mark's notes for the album. 2-3-23 was an outgrowth of the improvisational recording project that emerged between myself and Jane Ira Bloom, beginning at an early stage of the pandemic in April-May of 2020. We struggled to come to terms with the technological limitations of playing remotely over the internet. The initial motivation was to play music with another musician, something that we had become accustomed to and took for granted until the pandemic arose. As we became adept at the advances in software and the tamping down of the inherent latency of remote recording, we managed to produce two wonderful collections of spontaneous duos that documented our shared need for human and musical connection in a trying time. At one point, I sent a duo track of myself and Jane to Bobby Previtt to see if he might want to add drums and percussion to the track. It was just a thought on my part, but the result was stunning. Bobby was able to interact so deftly with our improvised duo that I felt we were now venturing into new territory conceptually, and it brought into question many suppositions about improvisation, interaction, and issues of time and being. End quote. These recordings completely challenge any preconceived notion the listener might have about any right way to collaborate or create improvisational music. To paraphrase Elvis Costello, talking about these recordings is like dancing about architecture. But we gave it a go, and enlightening and intriguing conversation was the result. I hope you enjoy. I'm very excited to talk to you about about 2323. And I was hoping before we dive into that, that I might be able to just do a little bit of background for our listeners. I'm sort of interested mainly in the relationship between the two of you. When did you first meet and start to play together? Was it in was it at Yale or did you meet that long ago or that's when we met in the nineteen seventies? Yeah, we met around seventy four, seventy-five. I arrived in New Haven in seventy four the fall. Jane, you were there already. Were yeah, I was there in 72. Yeah. So we, I think we met through the Yale Jazz Ensemble first. Probably, no? yeah, probably that or probably through Anthony Davis's uh, group that you were in. And then I used yeah, to come see you. We play opposite each other a lot. I remember. Yeah. She was in a band called the New Haven Jazz Ensemble. I think that was, was that the name? Yeah, a long time yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a long, yeah. long, long time ago. For what it's worth, I grew up just outside of New Haven. I'm from Hamden originally, uh-huh. and that's my old stomping ground. And I, I wonder if would either of you care to weigh in on the Great Pizza Wars? Do you have a Do you have an opinion on that, <laughs> <laughs> Mark? Am I correct in understanding in your background that did you come to the base relatively later in life? Not late as old as I am, but as a musician, picked it up fairly late. Depends on where you are when you say later in life, doesn't it? I was 20 when I started playing bass. That's Wayne Shorter-esque almost. Yeah, well, Percy Heath started me 26. So there. What was your background musically? Self-taught. I started studying clarinet at 19. I did that for about six months. And then I just uh, 
I heard an orchestra concert, the double basses came in and one was solo. And I found a bass teacher locally. I started you know, classical bass. What's attractive about it to you? Uh, the low frequencies. It's like, you know, I think people are uh, genetically programmed to be attracted to certain frequency ranges. I think it's undeniable. Clearly, Jay and I have very different ideas about it. <laughs> but yeah, that's a, it was intuitive and visceral at the same time. Yeah. And Jane, were you already on, was the soprano your first axe? Was that what you No, started? no, 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 not at all. Al, you know, like most saxophonists, I started on the alto. My voice is, I am not a soprano. <laughs> if I were to sing, I am not. I got up close to the soprano because my teacher at the time, a great virtuoso saxophone instructor by the name of Joe Viola. When we used to have lessons and I was quite young, I was right up against his sound. We'd play duets together and he'd, he'd pull out the soprano because... That was his love, too. I fell in love with that sound. I said, I want what he's having. In doing some of the background for our conversation, I was reviewing some of the interviews you did around the time Early Americans came out. And you were talking, Jane, about, I'm going to paraphrase you badly, but it'll be close enough. You essentially said that you love rhythm and you love rhythm sections. (laughs) What is that for you? I mean, I know you're so associated with movement and it's so sort of, captivating to watch you perform. Do you understand at all what the genesis of that love of rhythm and movement comes from? It's got to be something primary, but I love drummers and I love bass. (laughs) I wanted to play the drums when I was a kid. I couldn't. They wouldn't let a girl study drum set way back then. I always loved the drums. The bass is special to to my ear because I feel that it it is a complement to all the things that are bright and of treble about what it means to play a soprano instrument. So it's a perfect universe to have all those frequencies around you. And I can't help it. I, I gravitate to, <laughs> to very special rhythm sections like Mark Elias and Bobby Previtt. If you're going to gravitate to any, that's quite an engine room to have behind you. In that same vein, what is it about the trio format as a soloist for you? It's not your first rodeo in a trio format, but what bring what keeps bringing you back to it as opposed to having another, uh, you know, a pianist or, or something similar? You know, Mark Mark can confirm this too. But musicians, uh, improvisers, always talk about the magic of three, the triangle. Something about the triangle that it's open enough that it allows you to move to places unrestricted, and yet it has the potential to to create engine and rhythm and energy in exciting and free-feeling ways. That's the best way I can describe it. It's the best of both worlds. I, I You know, many saxophone players talk about, Sonny Rollins included, about the absence of the harmonic instrument that gives you the freedom to, to move where your internal thinking wants to move harmonic energy. So that's part of it. It's not all of it, but it's part of it. Yeah. I was, as I was listening to these improvisations, I was thinking about some of the other trio dates that I returned to just personally as a listener. And there were actually moments, not in terms of duplication or even homage, just in terms of spirit that came up for me. And I was thinking about the Joe Henderson Village Vanguard recordings from the mid 80s. There's a delicacy of the interplay. You can stop reading. Yeah, just so beautiful. And I heard a lot of that 
again, more and more spiritual informing, not anything else, not implying anything else. But I heard that interplay and that delicacy. And that quickly allowed my allowed me to pivot to this other part of our conversation, which is that those recordings are exquisite. I wanted to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, if we could kind of look under the hood a little bit and talk about the recording of this project. It's very hard as a listener, once you know how it was created, to forget that. And as I was downstairs before we recorded, I was thinking, what a fun experience it would be to hear this record actually before knowing how it was recorded. Because one thing I would say, and I'm sure you know this by now, there's no asterisk. You know, when I read the um, the notes that uh, <laughs> that Mark wrote and then heard the music, I came into it thinking, like, are they making such a point of this so that my expectations are lower? <laughs> yeah. He was about honesty, Lawrence. You know, we got to let Mark chime in on this, but it's really yeah, it's please. about honesty. Uh, Spirit of discussion amongst the three of us about whether we should talk about that or not. Initially, our idea was just put the music out there. Do not discuss the process. So we batted that around because we didn't really, we didn't want it to become like the shtick of the record. Oh, they did it now, put the drums on afterwards. Right? Because for me, I ended up mixing it and mastering and I listened to it a lot. Okay. And I came away with the belief that it really didn't matter how it was done because the result was the result and we're all very proud of. And I don't think that the process, it's an odd thing. I don't think the process actually imposed itself on the result. I would also give kudos to Bobby because he's the one that had to come in at the end and put his thing on. And the choices that he made were exceptionally intelligent and informed. And he also didn't allow himself to get completely familiar with the events. Apparently, he has pretty good memory because he maybe listened once or twice and then did like first takes on most of the stuff. Wow. Yeah. And his choices were not predictable and not conventional, but not out of character at all. So in a way, it sounds like to me, what would result if we just played together in a sense. Do you remember, Mark, when we were talking, what you said about, and this, I thought this was profound when you actually said it. It was like Bobby was already there in our minds. Mm -hmm. He was already there. We have such history playing together for such a long time that it became not important when, <laughs> the timeline of when it was, he was there already. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, we went into the process actually quite innocently because Jay and I had put out the second duo record, and we had we had recorded 47 tracks. So we had a, a huge surplus of pieces. So then there were these first choice tracks that became the second album. There was a lot of good music in there. So I just thought roughhandedly sent a track to Bobby and said, would you like to put something on this just for fun? And he did, and I was knocked out. So then I started selling more tracks. And then he said, why don't you leave 30 seconds on the front? So if I wanted to do any production. And I was like, great. So it was like that. And so we went into it not really knowing what we were actually doing. We just it just happened. So there's that. So in a, in a way the process was improvisational in the very nature of how it happened. That's beautiful. Yeah, which shows up. 
But the idea of telling people or not telling people was the big deal. And I decided, well, we just say what we did. And if people can't get through that without some judgment or some blockage, it's the way it is. But this is the way it went down. We didn't talk. We don't talk before. We just play. We don't talk about playing. We don't talk about what we're going to do or what we hope to do or, you know, what, what this should or shouldn't be. We just play. When we said it to Bobby, it was just, see what you want to do with this. That was it. You know what else you would say, you know. Yeah. There were definitely moments where, as a listener, I was thinking that I would love to hear the two tracks sometimes because, it, it, to your point, it was really hard to believe that there weren't drums there in real time. There were a couple of moments, I won't belabor you by trying to like isolate five-second marks or whatever, but where there'd be a bass run or something. And I'd think, wow, there were not drums there? Well, like that. It's just, it's really... I love the notion that the process was that there was an element of improvisation to the process as well. That that sort of completes the tonal picture, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. How far apart physically were you all when you recorded? Jane and I are like 90 miles. Well, I was either upstate or New York. I'm in New York City. I'm in New York City. She's in New York City. I was here some of the time recording. A lot of the time I was up in the country. About 90 miles away. Bobby was in Hudson, but he, of course, stayed afterwards. I mean, she and I were like 90 miles away or 10 miles away. <laughs> how much experimentation or how much work did you have to do to overcome any initial technical limitations? Like, how, how much of a barrier was the technology? Persevere, persevere, man. <laughs> Talking about that yesterday. <laughs> the day before we just we did, did a little bit of recording on Sunday. When we first started, it was like in April or May of 2020. And it's terrible. I mean, it was Zoom sound too, right? Oh, it was awful. <laughs> Beyond awful. We were like, we thanked each other because we hadn't played with anybody in like two months. And we realized we're kind of losing it. Because, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. We were in a strange state. So even that terrible experience of playing with you know, huge latency and cutouts and just weird sound. You know how it was talking on Zoom where you talk and then somebody else is talking and you just cancel out, right? So that's what we've done. But over the months, the technology improved. People became more technologically aware. The software improved. Our internet connections improved. You know, the understanding of how to avoid latency improved. We, I mean, it was a short period of time when software was really upgrading every month. Not just Zoom, but we were using SolidWorks. We used a couple other different audio softwares. And we recorded in place. So we weren't recording what was going over the internet. Jane was recording at her place, and I was recording at my place. Oh, okay. Then I lined stuff up. Then he lined it up. Yeah. Because we would do like, you know, like that clap tag. Just like in the movies, you know, the old... Yeah, primitive simpty. Yeah. <laughs> the interesting thing is primitive, right? As even our first attempts were in the beginning and with the technology not and the latency being awful. The interesting thing that we've talked about enormously since then was with all those obstacles in our way, there's something because of our improvisational background as, as improvisers, composers, we would anticipate each other, even when we couldn't even hear each other well enough, when we had just the littlest bit of information, 
we were still reaching out, how do I say this, even further with our ears to one another, trying to connect. And you'll hear, even in those early experiments, what excited us was we could still hear us reaching out to connect with each other in in unfathomable ways. I don't know how we anticipate these things, but we did. (laughs) There was one day, I think, where Jane couldn't hear me very well or vice versa. So we're kind of like flying blind. And when I put the tracks together, they were still coherent musically, you know, which was surprising because the other part of it is I hadn't heard what was happening at the same time in real time. So the first time I heard it was later. (laughs) And yet I heard something, but not anything clear, you know. So that sort of concurrence and creativity is what sustained us in a sense. You know, you know, when we were flying, select blind. Yeah, the connectivity is what excited us so much that we, you know, we persevered on, you know, making it better, finding the better software to play it. it what's what pushed our pushed us forward. It's hard not to be intrigued by kind of the metaphysics of it and actually the the physics physics of it. I mean, just the distortion of space and time that is going on to hear you talk about it, to hear the end result. Yeah, very hard to untangle exactly what was happening there as two human energies try to find its connection. I mean, it's it's not trivial. Yeah, we're back and read Heidegger again on time and being. But it's it's kind of like that. It's mystical, the neuroscience of what's actually going on in our brains <laughs> based on our history, based on uh, what we know and what we do and what we do in the moment when we have less information than we, we we normally have to communicate, yet how connective we proceed. Something amazing is going on in our minds. That's all I can say. Yeah. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. I talked to a lot of artists, primarily recording and performing artists, and it does seem that, especially amongst improvisers, a lot of them do follow a mystical path or tradition, or at least enjoy contemplating those things and reading about them. So they become versed in, in you know, I think of um, even things that borderline on modern psych, like Gurdjieff comes up a lot when I talk to artists. And I'm curious as to before this experience, did you view what you do or was there that component to how you thought about creativity and improvisation? Do you think about it through a psychological or mystical, spiritual lens? You know, I don't think so. The music itself is my meditative and religious world. (laughs) I don't think that kind of reflection that you usually associate with religious points of view and stuff, I don't think it enters into my process as I'm doing it. Perhaps as I reflect on it afterwards, maybe. (laughs) But in the process of doing it, I am about as zen as I can be in the sense of I am in the moment doing this thing that makes me feel more right on the planet than anything else I do. Uh, So that's my religion. (laughs) I have other practices that I do, not directly related to music making, but of course that it must all relate. But uh, we should ask Mark. You know, he might have, have different thoughts on it. Well, I related probably more to quantum mechanics and things like that. In teaching 
doing a lot of teaching of improvisational master classes and sort of week long residencies where I work with an ensemble for a whole week. We're talking about the pro- what is this process and what's going on. And, you know, one of the questions I always had was like, what's who's minding the store? For example, the only time you can effectively do anything, change anything is now, which is however you measure now is a millisecond or a, a minute or a breath or whatever. So meanwhile, you're you're activating sounds over a timeline in individual moments. And maybe you have a sort of overarching idea that you're trying to get through. But ultimately, you know, you play for 10 minutes and there's an arc to that an improvisation. That is, if it's captured in recording, you can actually observe it as a, or the timeline. So the question I have, if, if it makes sense, if there's a coherence to it, is there a structure to it, whether like a composition, how does that happen when you're busy activating sound in the moment? So the only thing I came up with was that there's probably some sort of process in the brain and another form of intelligence or another operating system that's going on in the background that has a sort of vigilance that's, you know, observing the arc over time. It's the only thing I can come up with because it seemed like I was very busy in the moment doing these things and convincingly putting something forth, an idea in the moment. And yet, all those ideas ended up to something that seemed coherent in the end. And I'm not just talking about me, but I'm talking about the process of improvisation. So you're playing with no preconceived notions and no particular form, no harmonic structure. But then you create them on the fly, or you create them in, in time. That also relates to the whole idea of existentialism in the sense that you know, you're, you're looking at your existence, that you're doing, which is fleeting. And yet it's in, in a continuum. So all the paradoxes that come along with that are inherent in, in improvisation to me. I think that's one of the most fun. I mean, other than as a listener being able to consume the output, I think that's one of the most fun elements of thinking about that real-time composition that is improvisation. You know, to get right to that moment you're talking about, whether it is a nanosecond or a minute, whatever it is, what is actually happening at that moment in time when the player's playing and creating and being and thinking and not thinking it's such a gift to be able to witness that and to be able to conjure that it's one of the mysteries it's definitely one of the mysteries no different than a ball player standing at the plate looking at a 110 mile per hour ball and what are they doing with the bat (laughs) Are they have time to think? No, it's a split second. It's a split second. Yeah. When it's do they decide? Yeah. Right. Something has happened before the event has even happened. That's the fascinating thing about neuroscience and how fast neurons connect and the fact that an action actually happens in nanoseconds after something has already neurologically changed that doesn't seem like it should happen at that moment. <laughs> it anticipates the moment. Fascinating. Plus, another thing to look at is the idea of, let's say you're a trio, or even just in duo, you're proactively creating. You're also listening and absorbing information coming at you. So how does that transaction work? And that's another real Zen moment, you know, like where if you become very conscious of it, it's past and you've missed it. If you just go with it and intuit it, instead of, you know, in your gut, 
where you can be proactive. And other times you know where you can absorb and, and receive. But it's constantly moving. How does that work? I don't know. And as our, our great colleague who just passed away, Wayne Shorter, said, how do you how do you meet the moment without fear? Mm-hmm. Uh, without fear is uh, what you come to after you've spent a lifetime making these split-second decisions. And you get used to the process of doing it. You, you're not fearful of it. It's like diving off the high board. <laughs> and if both musicians or two or three musicians are in that same state, Miraculous things can happen. You know, one time I was on a train in Europe, and I was I was asleep in this apartment by myself, and this guy and this woman came in, and I woke up and we got talking, and it was he was a free climber, a rather famous free climber, and it was, he showed me a big article in Gentleman's Quarterly. Uh, he had retired, and he was doing like the motivational speaking for corporations and stuff like that. But meanwhile, he asked me what I did. I were instrument with me, and I said, oh, "I'm a musician." And, he, and, you know, we got talking about improvisation, and he said, well, that's kind of like what I do, man. You go out there, you don't know what's going to happen. And we said, yeah, but I'm not going to fall off a mountain. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> He's climbing at Peru, and he fell 75 meters, or 75 feet. And he was in his 30s. He said he realized it was time to hang it up because he, he had lost the edge for that. But, you know, talking to him about this idea of this, like, extremely exciting, adrenaline-producing activity, and the scene impressive as we were on as improvisers, not to equate them, but there is a process involved in that. And he, he recognized it immediately, which I thought was really interesting, that he transliterated his experience to that of music very quickly. I love, I love the expression. You know, I, th- I think, Mark, it was a, a pianist Fred Hirsch, we were on the road once or something, came up with the phrase, and I've, I've always remembered it, jazz without a safety net. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we do with jazz yeah. without a safety net. Well, I was thinking the climber, he'll only fall off the rock and hurt his body. You'll be embarrassed. You'll <laughs> 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 hurt the pride, which is, you know, it takes a lot more to get. <laughs> Something for our, uh, that listeners won't be able to appreciate in this conversation is you both have a twinkle in your eye as you talk about this project. I'm curious as to whether or not there's more to do in this format. Now, obviously, I don't mean a duo or a trio format. I mean, in this approach to how you recorded, is this an opening of a door you might want to go through? Or is this a one-off time dictated by the pandemic? Have you thought about that at all? Is this a new, interesting form for you? We're going with it. I mean, Mark and I just played the other day. It's just, <laughs> we can't stop playing. Well, it's nice, Jim. And calls me and says you feel like, or emails me and says you feel like playing tomorrow or weekend. And we just set up a time. We hit for like an hour. She sends me the tracks and then I mix it. And it's a fun process in that sense, you know. We're constantly producing music again. And I could choose to make that into documents that we share. That's also a possibility. But we can sort of go on an unending search for improvising together and see what results. Now, in terms of like, you're sort of implying like planning and either expanding to larger ensembles or something. People are doing that already online, yeah. but like in real time together because the you know, software with a latency is manageable in some cases. But I don't know. We haven't really thought about, I mean, I haven't thought about doing this too much more than what we've done so far. Again, innocence about it. You know, we don't have, we're not 
projecting too hard. I mean, I did another project during the pandemic where I had a track. It was kind of like a funk track with a form and chord changes and everything. I did rhythm tracks, an organ track and a drum track and a bass guitar track and sent it to Jerome Harris, Bobby Previtt, and Ralph Alessi and had them put tracks on that. And then I just compiled it, mixed it, and put it on my bandcamp site for free. Just something to do. But it was an actual competition. But that's more like overdubbing. You know, yeah, yeah. Although if these guys were like super creative about what they did, which is great. So, in other words, there's a difference between what we did and click track date where somebody does their track afterwards. That's a whole different idea. What did anything wrong with it, mind you? The main thing for people to get about it is that we're, we're it's like we're pulling composition out of the air. Yeah. It's the high that we get is that we're composing together in the moment i don't know how we do it but that's the high <laughs> i guess the thing for somebody who's approaching it saying they just pulled that out of the air yeah that's what we like to do <laughs> there's something else that strikes me now after speaking with the two of you and i think it would be very i was going to say irresponsible but it would be wrong not to acknowledge it which is there's a certain resilience about this because there's a drive in your creative spirit that was not going to be locked down during the lockdown like it found its way it there was a little crack and it saw the light and it grew towards it and i think there's something incredibly powerful the fact that these recordings exist and that your creative energy insisted on manifesting itself technology time space distance be damned Say that the musical community responded that, that way in general. You know, we're not the only ones by far, but I was impressed with the music community because it shows you the profound desire and need to fix up, you know. And because this implicated us directly, we couldn't, you know, it's not like a writer, you can still write a book, yeah, still write poetry. Performers and composers who record, you know, who do social stuff. Social art forms were impacted extremely heavily. I was amazed that I mean, proud of my community that everyone seemed to just say, "We're going to figure out something here." And it wasn't just commerce; it was really about expression and community. So, I mean, Jane and I, we talked about that the first day we played together, which was a complete disaster sonically, etc. But it made us realize how much. The sense of engaging with other musicians individually and as a group was so powerful and so important to us. It was put in relief because of the pandemic. The idea that you could not be on a plane and go perform somewhere. You couldn't go to a hall and assemble people to listen to music. So, yeah, that impacted all of us, the whole community, in a way that I think we responded in the way people artists respond, which is they don't give hell down, they go. My first feeling was instead of impressed, I was going to get busy. <laughs> That's it. And you did. Music finds a way. Even the, in the history of, of improvised music, think about it, of all the obstacles and the challenges of the music and how it has to adapt and find its way through the music world or the society that values or doesn't value it, it finds a way. <laughs> Along those lines, what were your other experiences in your public lives during the pandemic? And by that, I mean, 
how long did it take? Did you teach again remotely? Did you perform at all remotely? Did you consume performances over live streaming? Like, can you talk a little bit about how you connected with the outside world? I became very extremely active performing remotely with composer Sarah Weaver, even some awful Zoom concerts that I <laughs> I did. Uh, I teach at the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music, and Allison Miller and I did a Zoom concert. Again, the latency was just awful, but the connective feel was like amazing. Yeah. That then generated another project that even Mark was involved with too. It became a way when we couldn't perform live of connecting and performing with musicians in the best way we could. Yeah, I did teach remotely for almost a year. Was it a year and a half? However long it was, yeah. Same thing. We found a way and it felt bad for the students, man. It was rough, really rough. But having some connection as opposed to nothing, it was better than nothing. That's all I can tell you. Better than <laughs> nothing. So persevered through that. And, uh, you know, I'm back teaching in the classroom and I still got my mask on, but we're doing it live. So it, we found our way through the hardest time of the pandemic. Did you consume any performance as a, as, you know, as a, as an audience member? Did you watch any live streams or, you know, did you engage that way at all? Live streams. I'm not sure I watched li- a couple of live streams. Not much. Not much. I did. I remember my buddy Ori Evans was doing stuff in Philadelphia outside of Brownstone in, in the open air. And it was great. He's doing it like either weekly or something like that. And different musicians would play. And it was really wonderful to see. Mark, tell him about that time that you told me you and Friedlander, Iris, or who was it? And you went out, played underneath the highway in Jersey? Oh, no, that was the Tony Mountain organized these amazing things under the New Jersey Turnpike in Jersey City, New Jersey. I mean, it was noisy as hell. You hear the charts going over, but we were out there playing. We recorded it, and he released an album. He might release more than one. We had one of the bands was Michael Formanek on bass, me on bass, Chess Smith on drums, Tim Burton on alto and, and on tenor. And then we did another one with Chris Hoffman on cello, Billy Vince on drums, Melody on tenor, soprano, me on bass. There were just these playing sessions outside. And there would be these like skateboarders would come down there and it was like under the ghetto shit. It was great. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, one of the one of the experiences I had with watching shows was I don't know if either of you have played this room, but there's a room out here in Seattle called the Royal Room. Oh, yeah. Wayne Horowitz is one of the co-owners. Every year they do a Hanukkah show of the music of Masada. The first year of the pandemic, they did the show. So the Royal Room was empty except for the band and the film crew, and they live streamed that. It was far more better than nothing. It was great. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But this year they did it back in person, and... There's nothing quite like seeing that songbook played live. It's one of the things I miss about New York. I was in New York for most of the 90s and up until a few years ago. So seeing all those great bands at the old knitting factory and Tonic and The Stone, it was quite a time for that that scene. Oh, tonic. Joe and I were just talking about Tonic. I'm, I'm missing Tonic these days. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Yeah, with, with Zorn's birthday coming up again, I remember those, I guess it must have been his 40th birthday at the old knitting factory and then his 50th birthday at tonic and that was those were great shows those were great shows what a great room miss it they actually they, they had closed closet is over in jerry building now, but they built over it's still there the actual building that it was in didn't be going away i don't know what the rent's probably fifty thousand dollars a month yeah yeah 
So now that the world's back to, I guess, normal, this is our normal now. Are you back to normal? Are your lives and careers and performing lives, you know, is there a new normal for you or is it we've picked up where we left off? How have you integrated what we've all been through and what you've been through? I started touring in Europe again in 21. Wow. It's nice and still, you know, you have to test and all this. Business. It was 21, and, and 21. And I started performing, I think the first gig I did after the thing started was in September 20, perhaps, outside somewhere. But of course, the dates are a little unclear. I, I, I could be off by... The third of COVID is how I refer to it. <laughs> but as you know, I went to Europe and we had to, at a time when if anybody tested positive, the tour was pretty much in jeopardy. You know, if you're the trio, you had a couple of friends of mine who had things happen where they tested positive and they had to bail. And sometimes the tour was done as a result. So it cost a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah. We, I did a tour with Uri Kane and also a tour with Eric Friedlinger and Court Chat, where we got through all those tours. Nobody tested positive. But we had to jump through some hoops to go from country to country. Certain countries are very restrictive about the tent. You had to get a tent ship the other day, et cetera. You know, it was a little more stressful. But I also, the last gig I played in Europe before the pandemic was February 8th, 2020, in Northern Italy, where a week later. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Crazy. And the hospitals were overrun. I had just gotten around very tired. Remember, we played in a really crowded club. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about Italy. You know, you forget all these anecdotes or episodes now from the other thing when you were first talking about playing in April and May together of 2020, I was thinking that's when we were still measuring it in like two week increments. Like, oh, maybe we'll all be, this will be, what would, what did they call it? Flattening the curve. We're going to flatten the curve. It was a very strange time. Yeah. How about you, Jane? Are, are you feeling life and career is back to normal? Not yet. No, I'm not, not, a, not as brave a road warrior as Mark is, but I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm getting there. How about the New York scene itself? Is it, are the rooms back? Are there places to play? Can an artist have their livelihood in the New York region at this point? Well, this that was a question before the pandemic, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, it, it's, yeah, the activities are going. I mean, I, I went to Vanguard, the other to hear some musicians. And, you know, there's little things going on all the time. In town, disease is going, Lincoln Center's going, all little venues in Brooklyn. My, my students who are li- living not in, you know, Manhattan's over, you know, they're, they're living, working, playing in Brooklyn and in the outer boroughs. And they, there's always something that they're doing. You know, something's going on in some, whether it's the home loft thing or whether it's the small venues that just pop up for them to play. And that ne- never died, you know. Yeah, this process and this sort of culture of self-determination in music has been etched out for the last hundred years. Every five or ten years, they say, it's finished, it's over. And they had a recording ban in the 40s and the 30s, depression, the war, you know, yeah. finances. The jazz actor closed. That was a big loss. That was a good day. I love that room. Yeah, but other things have popped up. Yeah, that's sort of the nature of any city, and I guess our New York in particular is sometimes your old haunt is there for you can still go back now and other times, you know, you walk by something and it's now a sky rise or what have you. But I have to thank you both so much for your time and for sharing this recording. It's really special music. Like I said, no asterisk or caveats needed. Um, no concession to the... Can we can we quote you on that? I love that phrase, no asterisks. 
please. <laughs> Royalty free. That's my contribution to the community. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jane Ira Bloom, Mark Elias, and in absentia, Bobby Previtt. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're presented by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Our producer is Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Mm-hmm.